Hello everyone and welcome to Rolling Forward. I am your host Ben Baldieri and thank you for tuning in. Rolling Forward is dedicated to exploring topics related to mental health and sports and the interplay between the two. I'll be talking to high performers in various areas such as sport, entrepreneurship and business about their experiences with mental health and the struggles they have had and in doing so seeking to broaden the dialogue. Mental health is a huge issue which has historically not received the recognition it deserves so I'm looking to do my bit to change that. My guest today is Adrian Carhill. Adrian is an executive coach, investor and business mentor to some of the most successful young entrepreneurs the world over. Adrian's unique background and experiences as a member of the Australian Armed Forces and transition from soldier to investor and then on to coach give him a unique perspective on the struggles commonly faced in the modern world. Adrian is the founder of Motivate Shanghai and Bali NLP and is passionate about helping people develop the skills that they need to succeed at whatever they do. In this conversation, we take a deep dive into Adrian's personal experiences with mental health, his time in an asylum and how he coped with the suicide of his best friend when he was deployed in Afghanistan. We explore his views on the current state of how mental health disorders are treated. Please be aware that this conversation does get quite intense, so apologies if you are triggered in any way. Please enjoy. Good morning, Adrian. Thank you very much for being here. Good morning, Ben. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. So the first thing um, I think we're going to dig into is your experience in Afghanistan. What happened? Why? What happened there? This is something that you've obviously got something to say about. All right, just just jumping in, dude. Yep. <laughs> in with both feet. <laughs> well, I've listened to your podcast. I've really appreciated some of the last episodes. The last one was was nuts. <laughs> you've got some really good ones there. And I was thinking about what to share. And there's this one particular experience in, in Afghanistan. So most people might think of straight away, they think about a Taliban or being shot at in missiles. And yeah, we were in a, a rocket-proof shelter. And occasionally it was, you know, raining. <laughs> raining. Raining lead. Raining, raining lead occasionally. And I had some, uh, I had some experiences. You know, I watched some of the snipers go off, and you know, snipers had their first action, and uh, sections going out. Some sections not coming back. Lost count of the amount of funerals I went to that year. Yeah. I was working with the the Dutch, Australian, and Dutch forces together, and some Americans nearby. I lost count of the amount of funerals. And uh, one of my guys came back with malaria. Uh, all my guys came back alive, but uh, there was one of these defining moments in my life there, and it wasn't anything to do with Afghanistan. However, you know, I have a, a tattoo of a cross on my back. Mm-hmm. You know, I've got a big cross on my back, and uh, I remember running around the airfield for exercise. We'd go jogging around the, the airfield, and out in the airfield in this desert, there are marijuana plants like two, three meters high, <laughs> blossoming <laughs> green on the side of the desert <laughs> airstrip. And right nearby, there would be a you know military guard hut. So that the local guards, you know, they would be smoking and they would be up there providing security. <laughs> and here I am, a white guy running past with a, with a singlet. <laughs> yeah, a, a pistol. <laughs> A singlet, a tattoo of a cross. Like these guys are going to use this for target practice. <laughs> but anyhow, uh, what actually happened was uh, my my roommate in Australia killed himself. Oh, was that 
after you came back? Or was that was while I was there. Yeah. So I'm out there with, uh, you know, all, all these things going on, sniper intelligence and stuff nearby, guns, kids, kids with guns, all, all kinds of mess up stuff. And then what really actually hit me the most was my, my roommate in Australia. Mm-hmm. Uh, I live with him, uh, you know, for months prior to going. He uh, was an extremely happy character, very, very happy character. And uh, I learned so much from him. And when he uh, did the suicide, yeah, it really, I guess you could say, uh, swept the rug from underneath my feet. Yeah. Sure. So what was your motivation for joining the military? If you're with this guy in Australia, this is someone that you, if you've looked up to, you've learned from. What was the, the driver that led you to moving away from that life and joining the military? I guess like a lot of your audience, uh, high ambition. Mm-hmm. I had very high ambitions. <laughs> I was going to be a millionaire by the time I was 21. It's <laughs> a solid goal. Millionaire by the time I was 21. Hmm. It was 20 years old, I realized I had nothing. <laughs> At 20, I came back from my holiday and went, oh, God, I've got $100, uh, a few zeros short. So I, I looked at the military as a complete commitment. It was a complete commitment to my next level. Mm-hmm. To an environment in which you'd be taught the skills that you were looking to learn, be able to apply them, or was it more of a, a mindset shift that you were looking for? I was looking for a complete lifestyle shift. Mm-hmm. I'm not on the path taking me anywhere near my goals. Mm-hmm. I need a shift. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I need a shift. I actually applied for the Air Force first, mm-hmm. and then uh, they came back saying, uh, no, we can give you this uh, telecommunications or communications role in the Army. Think about it. Go away and think about it, Sonny. Come back, come back later on if you've had a good think about it. How long did that thinking take? About an hour. <laughs> but then I joined up with a six-year contract, mm-hmm. and I knew, I knew it was going to change me. Yeah. I knew it, and I was looking forward to it. Yeah. Really looking forward to it. This is going to change everything. Mm-hmm. Looking forward to it with excitement. Yeah, anticipation. It was never as rough and tough as I thought it was going to be. Mm-hmm. They're getting softer and softer every year. But that's the motivation. Big life yeah. change. Sometimes you've got to do big things oh, to big, get big change. Big things for big change. I mean, if you do what you've always done, then you get what you always got. Yes, yeah. yes. As cliche as that sounds. As cliche as it is. Yeah. And some people will go home and they will, they will try to create a change mm-hmm. for themselves. They might change their diet. They might change something. But ultimately... That's all from their own thinking. Mm-hmm. They don't have the outside influences yeah. or the push and pull that you get like from a, I guess from a coaching even, from a coaching perspective, uh, moving countries, joining the military. From a drill sergeant and breathing down your neck when you haven't quite polished your, your boots to the standard that they're looking for. Yes. So then you're in, you're in Afghanistan, this happens to your friend at home, your friend takes his own life, you've been loving it up in Orton sort of loving even enjoying what the military has been giving you up until this point then this shifts your paradigm yes yes uh, I'm not sure if you've had it before I suspect you may have had it mm. have you ever had a buddy a mate write to you and tell you things and then uh, you know a week later he's not here on the planet anymore I had something similar happened with my brother luckily he is still here but went through a similar experience 
Yes, so he wrote to me like a week beforehand. Yeah. And at the very bottom of it, he said, uh, stop it, I should just go to Mexico. And there wasn't really any indicators or signs in there, but I suspect the way the brain works, we go back and we look for it and we look for it, we look for it. Now, this is in 2008. This is over 11 years ago now. I've done a lot of work on it and I've cleared it. And that's what makes it so interesting is that there's been a, many times over the past I've been in a massage or a Tony Robbins kind of event. And in the event, I've seen his brother, his mother, and uh, it kind of, it was, it was haunting me for a long time. But at the same time, what's happened uh, two years ago is I uh, was going through a process. I was going through a uh, psychotherapeutic process. I think, I think the, the gentleman would be a, a psychologist with uh, neuro-linguistic programming and uh, rapid eye movement desensitization mm-hmm. uh, therapy. Mm-hmm. And this gentleman took me through this therapy and uh, this is crazy. This might sound crazy, but you know, this guy is a full psychologist. He's working with a lot of veterans and we're sitting there in his psych office and I have this pen in front of me moving left to right, left, right, left, right. And my eyes are tracking left, right, left, right. Meanwhile, he just asks one or two questions and I'm back in and I'm, I'm, I'm sitting there in the seat and I'm in Afghanistan and I'm seeing what was around me and my heart was beating really, really fast. And uh, yeah, my friend came down in, in my uh, processing in this 40 minute session with the psychologist, when, when he pulled this out and did this process with me, I was back there, I was having a conversation with him, tears were falling out of my eyes, man. Nothing quite like seeing, you know, grown gentlemen, grown gentlemen, eyes like waterfalls. And I was having a conversation with him and he was telling me, you know, you've, you've been seeing this the wrong way. You know, you're not responsible, you know, you're not responsible, blah, blah, blah. I got these messages from him. Tears stopped, resolved. Mm-hmm. I felt light for the next noticeable, noticeable for the next like month. I felt like five kilograms lighter, lighter. What I was walking was. around on tippy toes, just light, <clears throat> like helium balloons were like, ooh. When you've been carrying around something of that nature for such a long time, you kind of get so used to it that you don't realise it's there until you go through something that takes it away. It's like, oh, I've been, I've been dealing with something that I didn't know was taking up that much energy. Yes, yeah. Prior to this, it was uh, it was the snipers that I mentioned because mm-hmm. snipers get enthusiastic uh, about doing their their role, right? And they get psyched up, they train hard, and you see the look in their face. I don't know if you've seen the look in their face after they've had their first kill, but could you imagine seeing these young gentlemen, maybe in their 20s, training very hard, very smart, because the snipers are the smartest or the most elite kind of guys, right? They're very, very smart, they're very well trained, and they go out for the first kill, they're mentally prepared for it. They come back and they look like ghosts. I, uh, because of my job, I. Uh, I see and I know everything. Yeah. You know, they report to me what happened. I see the report. Mm-hmm. I see them come in. Mm-hmm. Well, 
so was it a, a collection of these experiences that led to you you wanting to leave or was it a case of your contract was up and then looking for the next thing you feel you'd grown you'd taken as much as you could from that experience well when my friend said about going to Mexico yeah. and I uh, knocked himself off I was thinking it was, it was time to start the next life transformation mm-hmm. A lot of people talk about seven-year cycles, yep. and that was uh, that was approaching a seven-year cycle, about seven, eight-year cycle. Mm, so it was about time for me to go. Yeah. <laughs> I had the most glorious exit out of Australia too, because <laughs> we came back from Afghanistan. You know, we've got uh, the global financial crisis was mm-hmm. happening. Perfect time to be leaving then. Yeah. time to be looking for work <laughs> oh well my friends and I we, we have a bank in Afghanistan and the currency rate was falling you know there was a rapid change in the currency exchange but the way the bank worked there the bank would have 5 million 10 million dollars cash at a specific rate at a specific rate and once they went through all that money they would get another batch of money so, so the, the currency rates would update according to the batch of money. So the currency rates would update maybe monthly, not daily. Mm-hmm. Currency rate fell through the floor. It's quite a good spread that you can, you can make something with. I'm up to the banker, actually. There's a long line outside the banker, and it's all these grunts, uh, yeah, soldiers, myself, a couple of senior ranks. We're getting out our paychecks in US dollar. But as you know, you can only, you know, a lot of countries you can only bring uh, 10,000 US dollars into. Yeah. Now, for, for your audience especially, most people hear that, know that, and they stop there. I don't. I called up customs. I called up customs. I spoke with customs. I said, what's the, what's the go with this $10,000 limit? And they said, anything more than 10,000, you have to declare. Okay, so um, if I declare it, and then what? Well, if we think it's related to, to terrorism or, or we think it's related to tr- terrorism or drugs, we, we might stop it. And I explained to them, well, I'm going to be in an army uniform coming back from Afghanistan. Uh, <laughs> and they were like, yeah, fine, fine. Just, just, just declare it, just declare it. So all these soldiers came back. And I told my friends, all the soldiers came back carrying about 8,000 US dollars. Mm-hmm. That was 10,000 Australian on that day. <laughs> but by the time they got back to Australia... <laughs> And there I was, I had 20, about 25,000 US dollars mm. under my t-shirt. Solid. <laughs> yeah. Solid. Yeah, in US dollars under my shirt. <laughs> and I cashed it back in in Australia, you know, and got like an extra 30% gain or something from that. And then because of the GFC, uh, I had a friend, uh, a 21-year-old boy, his brother was working on Wall Street. An Australian working on Wall Street sees things a bit differently. Mm-hmm. So when he said about the crash coming and being on the edge and then the crash is here, we exited all the trades because I might be in Afghanistan, but we were trading. Yeah, of course. <laughs> you know, in our lunch breaks or if we're in base, you know, we might do some trades. So when the, when the GFC happened, we sold everything and got back to Australia, 25,000 US dollars with a 30% increase. And then I put all my Afghanistan pay into the stock market I saw my like home broker guy. I maxed out my home loans. Yeah, I maxed out my home loans. I put that money into the stock market and just rolled the recovery. Mm-hmm. So for the next three, four years, I've got passive income. Like, 
beautiful. Oh, business. Stick everything in at the bottom. So Afghanistan's over, but I'm still getting paid still, handsomely. Still seeing the benefits of it. Yeah. <laughs> okay, and then you're at home, and then some. Like we spoke briefly before we started about um, misdiagnoses. So was your friend who um, who killed himself? Was he seeing? Was he seeing anyone at the time? Or was this kind of something that just came out of left field, undiagnosed? No one knew what was happening. And then that was it. Just like that. Left field, unknown. Mm-hmm. No one knew it was coming. Yeah. If any of us actually knew it was coming, bloody fly there and look after it. Yeah, of course. But no, no, completely out of left field, unknown. Mm-hmm. So part of the reason I do what I do and I've been doing so much promotional work in Shanghai, rather than, uh, say, just making my own money for my family, I've been up here in Shanghai, you know, give money uh, to Lifeline. We have them up every event. We've got a little note about Lifeline. Uh, Lifeline being the phone line people can call up, yeah. you know. So I'm, I'm really passionate about helping to change this. And uh, over my life, there's, I don't know, maybe uh, 10 or so, 15, something, a lot of suicides actually now. That one had the most impact. But most of the suicides I've seen have all been really unexpected. Mm-hmm. But I, I had a phone call last week. Yeah, about five days ago, I had a phone call from another veteran. And he is in like a mental health facility in Australia right now. Mm-hmm. And it was rather disturbing what was happening in this mental health facility. And, and this, this gentleman has had, like a, uh, has had like an AK pointed into his head for half an hour. Yeah. So in terms of having like sound mental stability, if he's capable of dealing with that sort of stress not doing too badly and yet he's in this facility yes and he's actually in the facility because he said uh, I believe he probably said he was suicidal yeah and that isn't necessarily a matter of saying I'm suicidal they can ask questions they can ask questions and you just say yeah okay and they've transferred him from from one health facility, like a military health facility, to a civilian health facility. Now, in this health facility, they have the general public, which pay very little money. They have military veterans, which is paid by defense. And they have private health. Mm-hmm. So is this individuals who have decided that they need help, haven't been seen by a doctor or something, and kind of check themselves in? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. They've checked themselves in or they've been referred in. Yeah. I think a lot of the time they have to actually refer themselves in and do an autograph. I actually went in there once myself. I had a crazy experience. I had a crazy experience. I was uh, having a, I didn't sleep for maybe five, six days in a row. Mm, My what, brain was the, was fried. what was the catalyst for that? I had a broken leg. And it was in a cast. Yep. And I was uh, down on the beach sometime, sitting on the edge of the beach, and some kind of insects went into the cast. Mm-hmm. So it was itchy as hell. And it was so uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah. And I, oh, like I, one of these nights I wasn't sleeping, I went into bed, and there were like bed bugs or something. And I, these, these things, or, oh man, it's so ugly. 
uh, I suspect that whatever I suspect some of these insects lay eggs in, under the cast or something and then I am <laughs> there I am like completely freaking out covered in little insects biting me all over and I've got a, my foot in a cast it was freaking terrible man and I, I was in a uh, I was in a Taiwan at the time yeah it was really freaked up it was really freaked up and I ended up uh, you know not sleeping not sleeping not sleeping not sleeping not sleeping not sleeping and uh, yeah yeah things didn't quite work out the way it should have worked out um, and in the end I said yeah I, I asked because I can't really speak Chinese yeah but I went into the hospital, mm-hmm. you know, obviously to get the cast out and stuff and, and to get some assistance. And while I was in there, they thought it was strange that I could understand Chinese mm-hmm. and I'd only been in Taiwan for like a week. Mm-hmm. And uh, I could understand 90% of what they were saying. Mm-hmm. I don't speak Chinese. I can't even do that now. So sometimes the the brain goes through processes. I suspect it was... Uh, you know, bursts of energy or adrenaline or whatever was going on, I was able to understand. They, they had a translator and I could understand the doctor better than the translator. Mm-hmm. I'd done some of the neuro-linguistic programming, right, and I understand communication. Perhaps that had a little bit of influence. So but figuring things out from context and that sort of thing. Figuring things out from context, perhaps. And I think I was just able to figure things out from context, and I was able to understand uh, 90% of the conversation yeah. without hearing, and the doctor was amazed by it. Yeah. And then, so you were slightly delirious from, well, obviously very delirious from six days of no sleep. Yes. Able to understand more than these medical professionals think you should be able to, maybe complaining about having like itching sensations and that sort of thing, which can be an um, indicator of something something going wrong or not necessarily go wrong, some cross-wiring or something neurally, then what happens? Had the, uh, like, uh, it's kind of like Australian embassy stuff kind of turned up to, to check. So that I'm suddenly sitting in front of this lady who said she was from the Australian embassy. And don't forget, uh, I was uh, a little bit fresh out of Afghanistan. Okay, I was going to ask, like, when was this? Not that long after Afghanistan. And I was doing a lot of... Uh, stuff in Afghanistan that couldn't be spoken about Mm -hmm. you know so here I am with all this kind of intelligence information I was starting to peek out but then the Australian you know I've got like Australian embassy talking to me they're going to look after me and uh, they gave me their business card and it was just like a business card Mm -hmm. anybody can give you a business card Anybody can give you a business card. They should have had hard plastic identification with a photograph of them, not a business card. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Now, I've done my work. You give me a business. So now, now I started to realize, hang on, this is, you could be anyone. Anybody at all. Anyone at all. I'm in Taiwan, I was in Afghanistan and uh, I hadn't slept, I was getting a bit delirious, I was, paranoia kicked into the max, mm-hmm. yeah, paranoia really kicked in hard, yeah, <laughs> anyway, I ended up uh, sleeping in the hospital, you know, telling them where to go, telling them to stick it, I got on a public telephone, I called up the police, 
the police came in, the police uh, gave me a private room there, they, they left some pills on a table, they asked me to take the pills, I'm like, yes, no, <laughs> I'm not taking pills. And, and I sat there, you know, in like a wheelchair with a leg in a cast with the, with the pills there with the police just outside and, I, you know, like a one-way mirror going, holy shit, are these police going to kill me? Uh, are these guys going to take me and, you know, terrorize me and probe my brain? And uh, I was thinking, these guys are going to, you know... Something's going to happen. Yeah, yeah, there's enough... I have enough stuff here for them to track back, you know, military. It doesn't take too much to figure it out. You know, am I going to end up whatever? So, uh, yeah, it was pretty bad. <laughs> anyway, long story short, I uh, went into a bit of a care. I got asked to go into a care facility there by other embassy staff who had hard plastic ID. And I'll never forget when they turned up with hard plastic ID. So legit embassy staff. Yes, yes. And I was able to, uh, you know, inspect their identification ask them a few questions. Because are these guys the real deal as opposed to someone who's just pulled a card out of their wallet and handed it to you? Yes, I just asked them one or two questions and I can tell they're the real deal. You know, you got your safety questions kind of thing, you know, do you know where I've been and uh, do you know who I am and stuff and a couple of things come out and then I'm in a, they said, okay, we'll take you to this facility, you can stay here and then uh, we'll come back and, you know, we'll get you back home to Australia or whatever you want. Anyway, uh, a day or two later, there I was uh, sleeping at last, sleeping, and I slept for like uh, 16, 18 hours. And then I woke up, I woke up, and looking around, I got up, and uh, I left my room, went all the way to the door. My mum had just arrived, right then. That was my mother arriving, just then. And this, are you still in Taiwan at this point? Or yeah, yeah, Taiwan, mm. got on a plane, flew back to Australia. Got back to Australia, I went into a healthcare facility in Australia. I was assessed when I was there and I was under the effects of sedatives or something. And they assessed me while I was under the effects of sedatives. They said I wasn't. Uh, and I saw some report and it said I wasn't under the effect of sedatives. I totally was. And then uh, when I came back to Australia, I now visited an Australian facility and uh, they threw various labels and pretty much straight away, you should have drugs, mm -hmm. you know, here are sedatives. Mm -hmm. Yeah, something to deal with the symptoms. Let's not dig any deeper. I don't know the names of the, the drugs, but exactly what you're talking about, mate. Here are the drugs, take the drugs. I'm like, nope, nope. I put up my hands, I'm not taking your drugs. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'd rather take meditation than medication. Yeah, yeah. I need time to process, relax, relax, center myself, yeah. process, sleep, rest. Mm. And they, they didn't like it. Yeah. Or I don't know, but they, they, every day they were forcing me to take drugs. Mm -hmm. I had uh, ladies in there talking to me about uh, how bad marijuana is and how bad hard drugs is. and. I wasn't doing any drugs. Yeah. Yeah. I smoked a couple of joints, uh, a few joints when I was, uh, you know, oh. in the odd country. Well, if you're in Afghanistan, you're surrounded by what, <laughs> three meters or marijuana plants, then that's kind of understandable. <laughs> no, 
I, I didn't. I didn't. Uh, I wasn't on any drugs, but I, I had uh, these uh, mental health nurses uh, talking to me about drugs. And it's like, what the fuck? Do you know why I'm here? I'm here because I had a freak out. You know, I, I had an experience and it freaked me out. And them out, I didn't sleep. And they, were, they kept forcing me and pushing to me these drugs in various ways to the point where we're not going to let you out unless you have them. Yeah. Now my, the the phone call I had last week to my Australian friend, he was going through the exact same experience. They wouldn't let him see his kids unless he took the medication. No medication, no free time. No contact. No medication, no contact. Now he's medically trained, I'm not. He had some kind of very, very, he had a, a minor, minor pain. On a scale of one to 10, the pain was a two or a three. He was trying to get paracetamol which is like a level two, level three drug to match the pain. They said to him, no, you can't have any low drugs. You have to have a nine. Oxycontin, Vicodin, something like that. Yeah, something like that. So they're refusing to give a client who has like a headache paracetamol and instead they want him to take this level nine drug. Morphine. (laughs) And they're telling him, you can't see your kids unless you have this. And uh, what do you think that is? Do you think that's um, the result of either misdiagnosis or there being more of an agenda from a healthcare perspective? Whereby, I mean, for example, in the states, it's money based. If you're a doctor, you get a kickback from a company if you're pushing a certain product. Is that a feature of the Australian healthcare system as well, or is it maybe not necessarily negligence, but perhaps incompetence? I'm aware of all these things. Mistakes happen. Uh, sometimes things are misdiagnosed, and perhaps it's a combination. But uh, dude, it, mismedicated, mismanaged. He hasn't seen any kind of therapist, psychotherapist, hypnotherapist. They're not like doing all the stuff they could do. Instead, they're they're just under the the hard drug, seeing psychiatrist maybe once a week or, or very, very, very little time with psychiatrist. So the, the system there is totally messed up. But from a financial standpoint, yeah. from a financial standpoint, uh, he was saying, and I, I didn't see this in the, I didn't see this where I was, but where, where I was as a military veteran, I was a higher paid client. So military are higher paid clients, private health are higher paid clients, public, lowest. Now my my friend was saying there was an incident there and uh, there were like five people. There were him and two private cares and two of the cheap public cares. Yep, and I think the five of them all complained about the misconduct of one of their staffs and they they kicked the two public ones, the two cheapest people out and they were replaced on the same day by a private and another military. Wow. So it's a very good business decision. Yeah. Very good financial decision. Now, one of those two of the lowest, the, the two that were kicked out, one of them killed himself a couple of days later. Wow. So is, do you think that my mental health is becoming a lot more of an issue? This is the partially the purpose of this podcast is to be able to dig into these experiences and understand why they're happening and then hopefully provide some value to someone who may be going through something similar. Do you think that the reason why mental health is becoming more of an issue is because the management of it 
is getting worse. People are not able to identify potentially negative spirals. They find themselves trapped in one and get worse and worse and then go and see a doctor looking for help and then they're given this kind of band-aid for a shotgun wound as it was. Oh, you take these pills, you'll feel better. Why do you feel that? You're, you're a smart man, Ben, and I'm sure you got a smart audience. So much of what you're saying, I can uh, completely agree with, and each one could be its own podcast. It's, yeah. it's totally right on. So there's a lot of uh, misdiagnosis which can lead to someone going in. I just want to fast forward a little bit. I, I got out of my facility, and uh, I had a friend come in, and he was a bit of a coach. He wasn't really a coach for other people, but he just studied. He studied the NLP. What kind of coach and assistance just for the audience? He wasn't really even a coach. He, he studied NLP, neurolinguistic yeah. programming, right? So he had the basic foundations of that, which is actually really powerful. He just had the basic foundations of the NLP. And he came and visited me and coached me a little bit. And he uh, said to me, Adrian, you know, sometimes people are a victim. Sometimes they're a persecutor. Sometimes they're a rescuer. And you have this triad and people are commonly in here. And he said, Adrian, what you need to do is you need to get out. You need to dissociate yourself. Go out into the observer position. Come over here. You know, I went into the corner of my room and I looked back at me in the bed. And I was processing it from an observer point of view. And I said, okay, Adrian has to play their game and get the hell out of here. So becoming present I have to allow myself allow myself to be a victim allow them to think they're right allow them to think okay I'm behaving to their standards I'm a good boy have their pills leave stop the pills and that's exactly what I did had the pills passed the test I got out flushed the pills something very interesting happened there as well I, uh, I, I had my last pill in the facility I went into my parents' house and I uh, told them and they, they believed I was still having the pill mm-hmm. and they saw my great recovery. They saw my great recovery. So you attribute this recovery to... Yep, they thought I was on pills. Yep. I was recovering. I was just getting back down to earth, getting grounded again, right? But they, they attributed the success with the pills. The pills are working. Uh, I went down to see my friend. He had a psychologist, the same guy. He had a psychologist staying in one of his, uh, you know, he's got a, a big house, rents out some rooms. One room was rented to a psychologist. I had hours with her, hours with her. She would come home from work. She'd give me an hour or two, yeah, for like a week or two. And uh, I came back to my home, kept having my imaginary pills. I told my mum and dad, I'm going to stop these pills. And they freaked out. My parents totally freaked out. And they started getting on edge. And I said, it's okay, it's okay, don't worry. And then uh, a few days later, they realized that I, they, a few days later, they thought I stopped taking the pills. Mm-hmm. And then uh, they, they freaked out and they said, Adrian, you know, we've watched you recover, recover. You know, you've recovered so much in the last one, two months, you've recovered. In the last two days, you've gone downhill. The last two days, you've gone downhill. We've mm-hmm. seen it. Two days of downhill versus... I was off pills as soon as I left the facility. Yeah, of course. They contributed all my positive result to the pills. And then you have a couple of bad days and that's because... I didn't have actually bad days. Bad days. I didn't have bad days. I had bad days from their point of view because they were worried I was going to stop taking the pills. And when when they knew I stopped taking the pills, I was having a bad day. 
So belief, mm-hmm. uh, belief is projection. Belief is perception. Beliefs are so important. Mm-hmm. Before we dig into that, do you think that there is a place for pharmaceutical intervention if someone does have like a genuine chemical imbalance as opposed to is just sad? Do you think that there is a place for medical pharmaceutical management of these conditions, or? Should drugs really be kind of the last yeah, line, as it were? Okay, let's look at depression. Yeah. Okay. You know, for me, the best way to handle depression is to wake up at sunrise and go for a walk in nature. Mm-hmm. If you don't have nature, you're in a city, get an apartment that faces east. Watch the sunrise. There is a release of melatonin, you know, so you have a chemical release by your body. So depression, anyone that gets depression, challenge yourself seven sunrises in a row. Get out there and see the sunrise seven days in a row. Mm-hmm. If possible, walk in nature. Try that. See how that has an effect. Get moving. Get moving. Get to the gym. Now, that melatonin and that moving, I believe, I believe has a much more powerful, lasting, sustainable effect. So you, you have the, the medication, meditation. You can have artificial, natural made by man often for profit made by god mm-hmm. a religion irrelevant right nature made by god man made for profit take mm-hmm. your pick mm-hmm. you want a profit you want a result now if you really want a result i think you should focus on the result so if your result is i want to have really good health but i have these problems i would say go the natural way first and recognize that there are more natural ways than anybody thinks yeah no one has done all the natural ways. They've just done maybe one or two. Mm-hmm. Some of them are like, oh, I tried waking up two sunrises and it felt good, but I didn't keep doing it. Okay, so you've tried a little bit of the natural way and you've stopped. So there's a lot more natural ways. Fully commit to it. Yeah, fully commit. There's talking therapy, there's acupuncture, there's massage is great, there's daily exercise, there's mm-hmm. changing your diet. Mm-hmm. They're seeing a, okay, it might be depression, but it's seeing a dietitian and a nutritionalist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you can try all these natural ways which may affect it. And these kind of broad range of natural ways, natural remedies, also natural philosophy. Someone said yesterday about traditional Chinese medicine and they spoke about philosophy. Well, if you change your philosophy, now if someone is there like my life sucks and my life is shit and I'm a bag of ah, well their philosophy is rather negative and it will create more negative things in the body and around. So you change your philosophy. Change the way great. you look at things, the things you look at will change. Yeah. yeah. Now if all of, all, all, all of that doesn't work, or if you just have a splitting migraine because you got dehydrated, yeah. yeah, I'm down for it. Now yeah, I'll, I'll have a paracetamol. I have a paracetamol or neurofen maybe a couple of times a year. Yeah. Now the thing is, is pain is there to tell you something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there, there is a function in pain, mm-hmm. but the thing is, it doesn't have to stay there. And this is what happens a lot with things like depression or, or even injuries. So, so there's a pain in your heart, Mm -hmm. a heartbreak. Mm -hmm. Heartbreaks generally hurt. It's there for a reason. It's loss, isn't it? You've lost something, you've... Deal with the loss. Deal with the loss. (laughs) Deal with the loss. Don't get drunk and look for a rebound, you know, or deal with the loss. Now, you've got an actual injury, 
deal with the injury. Mm-hmm. Now, if you have a powerful, powerful enough psychology, or you work with people, you can actually stop the pain. Mm-hmm. It doesn't take too much. So you've got a pain in your leg, you know your leg's broken, okay, I'm gonna put my leg up and rest. Uh, there's still pain, there's nothing I can do, well, there's nothing to learn from the pain, I can have medication, but you can also, if you're powerful for your mind, you can switch off the pain. Mm-hmm. Well, the pain is still there, acknowledging it's still there, but you're not suffering when you're experiencing it. It's not. Just like people that have tattoos. Well, exactly, yeah, exactly that. Yeah, just like tattoos, you know. Something goes in your head, something in your brain switches. Maybe the first time people get tattoos, I think it was painful as hell for me. Yeah, Yeah, it was an experience. (laughs) So tattoos are a great example, especially if you get a big piece, right? And they start it and it's like, ah! And then then the pain goes until you have that mental switch. Mm -hmm. And you have a mental switch. And I I love the feeling of a good tattoo. I know the first half, the first few minutes, it's gonna hurt, and then. But well, then you can settle into it, settle into the experience, accept it for what it is. Whew, that's an experience, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> I spent um, eleven hours in total in the chair in Bali this July, and exactly that, like coloring in bits of my shin. The shin is not the most fun place to be tattooed um, at the beginning not fantastic desperately wanting it to be over but then you settle into whatever it is that you're going through you settle into the fact that it hurts and that sucks but that's kind of a normal part of the experience it okay. hurts that sucks but it's a normal part of the experience exactly. it doesn't really matter if it's a hard pain and it's going to pass tattoo. it's going to finish like you can it's deal with pass. the moments of pain and life is but a, mo- a series of moments isn't it and the moments pass every moment up until this point has passed every moment after this point will pass just deal with it Exactly, but you got someone else having medication then? Yeah. So you have a tattoo and, uh, you know, or a heartbreak or a broken leg or, uh, you know, you've been knocked on the head or something, you know, uh, you you have a a process, your body has a natural window to recover. Mm -hmm. If you're doing sunrise, good nutrition, good exercise, looking after yourself, you may be able to get through it very quickly. Mm talk to a therapist, a coach, or a hypnosis, or acupuncture, or massage, or something, you might be able to get through it in a relatively small window. Now, if you have a pile of medication, I think a lot of people will have medication because maybe it's an easier option or something. It's easier option or it's pushed upon them. Well, or it takes the responsibility advised. away, doesn't it? It takes the responsibility away from you to a certain extent. Like, I'm gonna take these and I'm gonna feel better. Why don't I feel better? I just need to take more of these. So the associations are onto the the associations are tied to the drugs Mm -hmm. rather than it's disempowerment. Which then brings us nicely back to beliefs. How would you define a belief? What is a belief? Great. A belief. A lot of times I hear limiting belief, Mm -hmm. or am I here a self-limiting beliefs? Well, all beliefs are limiting. So I believe we're talking. And there is a limitation on that. So I believe we're talking. This means we are not sleeping. We are not playing on uh, computers. We are not driving a car. We are sleeping. So everything talking. has, mm-hmm. uh, they all have limiting. Yeah, so, so the, the belief is like a faith or a knowing that something or, you know, is real. But a limiting belief 
always limiting. Mm-hmm. So we're here talking, we're not sleeping. So we're here talking is a belief, it's a limiting belief. Mm-hmm. What about negative self-limiting beliefs? For example, going back to depression, when you're depressed, I've been depressed, I've been, I've taken medication before, I similar experience to you, I stopped taking it because it actually made me feel worse. Um, but when you're depressed, it's very difficult to deal with being in that negative state of mind because you're in such a bad place, you don't feel as though you're going to get any better. And because you don't feel that you're going to get any better, you get worse, which then brings you into this nice downward spiral. Oh, downward, downward spiral. Yeah. We should all be in an upward spiral. Yeah. We should all be in an upward spiral. It's 2019, that'd be 2020. We should, be, we should all be in an upward spiral. Okay, so when, when we're young, we get our first beliefs. Obviously, it comes in, you know, from the environment around us, parents and whatnot. And I suspect that, you know, our parents constantly saying things to us and mother saying some things, perhaps mother's family saying some things, and then father saying something and father's, you know, parents saying something. We have all these people telling us as a young child, I believe we kind of absorb their, their voices and impact. That perspective. Yep, yeah. yeah, and this forms part of our ego, you know many parts to it so we have our beliefs but who says if it's negative or positive i mean could you define that by the effect that that belief is having in your life is it could you define it as negative if it's not taking you where you want to go and you could you define it as positive if it is taking you where you want to go Tony Robbins relabeled that well he may have got it from somewhere else but he labels it resourceful and Mm -hmm. unresourceful I think it actually came from NLP as well. So resourceful and unresourceful. So a resourceful belief, and I guess you could essentially say a resourceful limiting belief is that I'm going to get better and better every year. Mm -hmm. Isn't that a great belief to have? And then you would have an unresourceful limiting belief. I can't get better every year. I'm getting slower every year. So the, the negative or the positive is totally a subjective point of view which can switch at any moment so the positive whether it's positive or negative are just labels we use we label a lot of things positive or negative yet there are so many more ways to look at it in fact if we label it a negative experience we're kind of getting this thing an experience we're putting it on ice and we're saying it's negative where sees that event has gone Mm -hmm. and we are holding on to the baggage from the past Mm -hmm. and we are holding on to it in a negative perception Mm -hmm. all completely internal that's why these coaches psychologists and people you interview so uh can get results so successfully different people it's just that there are so many ways to change and update update it's actually natural to be updating our beliefs Mm -hmm. being able to step back and look at your beliefs, yes, realize so. which ones are serving you, realize which ones are not, and taking steps to address that. Yes. Uh, one of my favorite models, and a fantastic book, uh, it's probably too technical for most people, but A Slide of Mouth by Robert Diltz looks, looks a lot deeper at that particular structure of beliefs. And uh, I like his model very well. And he says, at our core, or inside our core, we may have our spirituality, perhaps a connection to it, to God or a higher conscious, and then we have our core identity. And our core identity has, it can be broken down into values. 
So I value health. I value money. I value relationships. And one person may have a higher value for money. Someone else may have a higher value for relationships. Someone may have a higher value for family. And the order of these values affect what they deem as positive or negative. So if someone is putting their money first and focused on making money and that's in line with his value system, he thinks what he's doing is great, anything that makes him money is positive. If someone else thinks money is very, very bad, they will label the same experiences as negative. So you have your core identity and then you have your, your values and you have your value system, the priority, and this isn't fixed. Different times it can change. If you lose a child, it'll change around. Someone has a heart attack, suddenly, boom! Your value system. The value system changes. Now, around each value, such as health, you have your belief system. And all the beliefs around health, such as uh, hot water is good. So that's a belief, and all these beliefs form around the value, health, right? So then you have your your belief, uh, warm water is good. You can write down, and you're, you're, you're welcome to try this at home. If, you've, if you believe that you're not good enough, if you believe that you're not worthy, if you believe uh, you're not worthy of being loved, no one will love you, any of those kind of things that you want to label as negative, I would encourage people to write it down. Writing it down gets it out of the head. Once it's out of the head, you can look at it from a more objective point of view. You can look at it from different angles, and you can start playing with it. Mm-hmm. You can start doing different things like crossing it off. Now you get the value such as, uh, I am not good enough. There's a structure around that. How do you know you're not good enough? What does not good enough mean? Yeah. What are other ways? What happens when you're not good enough? What does not good enough lead to? Mm-hmm. So you have a structure like legs on a table around the, the belief. You can knock off, if you imagine the belief then being like a table, and you may have a tables around your different values, and the values being around your core identity. Mm-hmm. Core identity, values around it, values having beliefs around it, beliefs having the legs around it. How would you go about changing? those beliefs let's say you've done this exercise you've written down some beliefs you're looking at them you're able to look at them in a more objective way and you're thinking wow it's like these are not serving me these are not taking me where I know I want to go in the future how would you go about changing those beliefs and subsequently how would you go about maybe changing your values great question now if I was a psychologist paid by the hour I would suggest we have a lot of sessions (laughs) I would suggest we have a lot of sessions then. Maybe we can do weekly sessions for a year or two because uh, that'll, that'll help you see your change, Ben. So weekly sessions, uh, let's, do, let's, let's lock you in for weekly sessions. I, I see you sitting here, Ben, and I see a big dollar sign over your head. <laughs> 52 sessions with Ben, right? And that's the problem with the industry. Uh, it gets paid on sick people, right? And it's paid by the people or it's paid by the insurances. Now, uh, I'm a, I'm, I do coaching. And I'm going to self-plug here for coaching. I, I don't get paid by governments. I get paid by organizations, perhaps Google, perhaps, uh, you know, this company here, that company over there, Goldman Sachs or someone. I think Goldman paid one of my last coaching invoices, right? Now, the thing is, I'll, I'll pay my client eight weeks complete transformation. 
eight weeks, I'll go really hard. Exercises, coaching, activities, in eight weeks, you get a bigger, a much bigger change than a lot of them will have with years with a psychologist. Mm-hmm. I'm not paid by the government. Again. Paid on results. Going back to when we were talking about medication, if you're a doctor and you're receiving kickbacks, you're going to receive, you're going to prescribe medication. If you're a psychologist and you make money from an hourly basis, you're going to prescribe as many possible, as many sessions as possible. It's completely counterproductive, but uh, our, a lot of our system creates sick and victim mentality. Mm-hmm. I like to grab people. And this is essentially what a so a lot of the psychologists are great at doing labels, you know, psychiatrists, they can give you pills and bigger labels and some of those labels might be good for medicals and insurance and claims and stuff. The alternative side of the house, you've got more types of therapists, psychotherapists, hypnotherapists, you've got ways to get people back up on their feet. <sighs> the therapists, I think, do a great job. Uh, and I think if you know anyone that's close, if you know anyone in a health facility or on the edge of the health facility, I would recommend looking for more natural ways to deal with it. <sighs> yeah. Dude, I am so annoyed at the system. I thought about going through university just so I could, you know, be a psychologist and then go to be a psychiatrist or, you know, a doctor and something and, and change. And I realized it was more of an internal battle. Yeah, I'm really kind of disgruntled with the health system in Australia, America, Great Britain. But I have a little bit of inside knowledge. My uncle was a psychiatric nurse. My uncle was a psychiatric nurse, so I grew up with him. There we go. Okay. We've people outside. We have some people outside, so just before we finish, one last question I like to ask everybody, um, everyone that I've had on. If you're... If someone is listening to this and they're in a place where they're really struggling at the moment, they're struggling to deal with the challenges that they're facing, what is one change that they could make that would help them move forward through those challenges? What is something they could do right now that would give them a significant improvement? Okay. I'm going to say two things, if that's okay. First thing is the changes to make. So I do this thing called a sunrise package and I encourage and push sometimes make it part of the commitment that my clients get up at sunrise they get up at sunrise and they walk they do some form of activity and meditation at sunrise it is life changing a lot of people that have depression are up late at night yeah a lot of them can't sleep when you have poor mental health it's hard to sleep so wake up really early see the sunrise yay it's a bit of a drain but you're gonna sleep better Look for the natural remedies, look for more nature. But the second bigger thing is to reach out for help. But when you're reaching out for help, you need to reach out to the right people and be aware that those people will give you their uh, recommendations from their perspective and from their point of view. Therefore, they're limited by their own experience and knowledge. I happily take calls regularly and I say to people, look, uh, thank you for your call. I think." psychotherapist or a psychologist is excellent for you I think hey this sounds more severe I think you should really have a couple of sessions with a psychologist to get a label someone calls me up sometimes they're right for coaching but not for me I push them to the right that's because of my uh, knowledge in this field now you may reach out to help and if your friend is a uh, 
is uh, perhaps they've been in university their whole life and they think that psychologists and psychologists are God, they'll probably push you to see one of them and they might push you to them. If you reach out to your friend and your friend also has depression, no one's going to give you good advice. <laughs> yeah, so you're going to reach out for help and get good help. The helplines, lifeline. There are other helplines. Reach out for help. Reach out for help. So, dude, take those big steps to change yourself. Secondly, reach out for help and tell people, you know, I need a bit of a hand. I'm not feeling the best. And that's okay. Oh, that's the biggest problem is, uh, especially we, we as men, we, we try to do everything by ourselves. Great things are not done in isolation. No great things are done in isolation. That is the perfect place to finish. All right, so we're going to go outside and we have a coaching boot camp where we've got a pile of people and we're going to be... Uh, learning about the basics of coaching today. Grand. I will have you back on and then we can talk more about that in the future. Thank you very much for doing this. Um, I hope you all enjoyed listening to that as much as I enjoyed recording it and we will see you again soon. My guest today is Adrian Cahill. Adrian is an executive coach, investor and business mentor to some of the most successful young entrepreneurs the world over. Adrian's unique background and experiences as a member of the Australian Armed Forces and transition from soldier to investor and then on to coach give him a unique perspective on the struggles commonly faced in the modern world. Adrian is the founder of Motivate Shanghai and Bali NLP and is passionate about helping people develop the skills that they need to succeed at whatever they do.